view. Very popular. Most of the books in my library that do not uh, agree with the proper understanding of 1 Timothy 2 try to, to say this, try to teach this. This is cultural. We've outgrown that. How do you answer that? It's really not difficult at all. There are several ways that we can work around Bible passages that we don't like. Pastor Steve Kreloff has just described one of those ways, and he will have more of them today on Verse by Verse. Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is home to Pastor Steve, and Verse by Verse is one of Lakeside's ministries. I'll tell you a little more after our lesson. Our text for this series about women in worship is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-15. through 15. Right now, we are in the heart of that passage, and there are many people who take issue with the obvious interpretation of those verses. One way to handle passages like this is to claim that the Bible is wrong about who actually wrote them. Just like there are people who claim that Isaiah didn't write parts of his book, there are people who say that Paul did not really write 1 Timothy. Another weapon used against certain Bible truths is to boldly claim that the author himself was simply wrong. They agree that Paul wrote the words they don't like, but they claim he was mistaken. That sounds pretty arrogant to me, but it happens a lot. Here's Pastor Steve now with some review on that technique from our last class, and then we'll move on to the danger of redefining Bible words to make certain verses say what we want them to say. The second way, and I don't think we would have much problem with that, but the second way that people handle a passage of Scripture like 1 Timothy 2 or other Scriptures dealing with the role of men and women in the church, is to say this, Paul wrote it, but he was wrong. So they're giving some concession. They think, yes, Paul wrote it, but Paul was wrong. He was influenced, they say, by his Jewish rabbinical upbringing, his training, his background, and he didn't really have a proper understanding of how the gospel related to the role of women. Now that is being propagated a lot. Many people say that. Paul was wrong. This is the whole debate in theological circles of what we call the inerrancy debate. Does the Bible have mistakes? And this is a very low view of of the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture means that God so controlled the Bible writers that what they wrote, what they wrote down was indeed the very words that came forth from God. It was not a mixture of truth and legend. In fact, if you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, this is just very basic, very basic, but I want you to understand this. We're not in a rush to go through 1 Timothy 2. You need to be equipped. You need to understand it. We need to, to help uh, give ourselves convictions on this matter. But 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, he's speaking in context about when the Lord was on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, with his disciples. He says, in fact, let, let's, let's look at that whole thing in context. Let's look at verse 16. That's, that's better to see it in its whole setting. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says there was a time when we actually witnessed the majesty of Christ, we saw his glory. When was that? It was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured before them. Uh, it's as if he pulled back the flesh and the glory of God shone, and they had a glimpse of the second coming of Christ, of what it will be like. And Peter said, we didn't tell you tales. We didn't make up legends. 
We witnessed it. We saw it. I was there and there was James and John with me. And verse 17 backs that, that interpretation up, which is correct. For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, Peter says, heard this utterance made from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. Now Peter said, I was there. I was an eyewitness. I saw it. I heard it. And he says, or it could be translated, or, we have a prophetic word made more sure. Best to translate it. And we have a prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. In other words, he said, look, we saw him. We heard him, but we have something that's more sure than what we heard and what we saw. We have the word of God. It could be, and I believe should be translated, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Not prophecy in the sense of telling the future, but prophecy in the sense of the words of the prophets. We have something that's more sure and and reliable than what we heard and what we saw, because you can't always trust what you heard and saw. We have it in black and white, he's saying. What is that? It is the word of prophecy. It is the proclamation of the prophets. Verse 20 says, but know this, and this is why it's more sure, because man didn't make it up. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no words of the Bible are a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Someone asked me recently, how did, how did that happen? I don't know. I don't speak like that. I just study what's in the book. I've never spoken in, uh, in an inspired way. I don't know how it happened. But the point of Second Peter chapter 1 is to say that what God breathed out was written down by men of God who were so born along and controlled. And that word born along or control is, is, is the word that's used of a ship being absolutely dominated and controlled by the wind, at the mercy of the wind. They were so controlled and dominated by the Spirit of God, even though he did not violate their own personalities, that what's written down is exactly what God breathed out. So the way we answer the, the view that says Paul wrote it, but Paul was a rabbi and he hadn't moved away from his rabbinical teachings to say that is not what the Bible teaches about the inspiration of the scriptures. If that's the case, then you might as well throw out the whole Bible. If there's any error in the Bible, then you don't have a trustworthy account then if the Lord is, if Paul was mistaken here about the role of men and women in the church, then how do we know he wasn't mistaken about the gospel that Christ died for our sins? You see, you cannot even admit and, and allow for one error in the word of God. And so that is also a very weak argument to say Paul wrote it, but he was mistaken. In fact, Paul uh, oftentimes went against his rabbinical upbringing. Paul did not teach what he learned as a rabbi. If he did, he would be teaching salvation by works and not by grace. And so Paul uh, certainly uh, had a background, and Paul, as every one of us, had an upbringing and had things that were brought into his life, but never did error and his background come into the writing of the Word of God that in any way would compromise 
the inspiration of Scripture. Now, there's a third way that people try to handle this, and they say it's true. Paul taught women to submit to men. At least they admit that. They say it's true. Can't deny that. Paul did that. He taught them that women should submit to male leadership in the church. But that was only for the first century culture. That was only for Ephesus. That was just for that day and age. It is not applicable to the 20th century. We are now more enlightened. We are much more enlightened than the people of the first century, especially in the Middle East, where women went around in head coverings and things like that. We are much more enlightened and sophisticated. Now, this is a very popular view. Very popular. Most of the books in my library that do not uh, agree with the proper understanding of 1 Timothy 2 try to, to say this, try to teach this. This is cultural. This is not for us today. It was true. It was for them. But we've outgrown that. How do you answer that? It's really not difficult at all. The foundation of Paul's teaching on the submission of women is never intended to be culture. Watch this. Look in verse 13 and 14. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Now, regardless of what that exactly means, and we'll deal with that when we come to it, you can see that Paul is saying these are the reasons why men should lead in the church and not women. And he says the basis of this reasoning is found in creation itself. And the design of God from the creation itself of Adam and Eve, it is not based on culture, it is based on creation. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you don't need to turn there, Lord willing, we'll look at that another time, but he says that the women ought to be silent in the churches, and he says, because the law of God teaches this. Not culture, the law of God. But I want to show you something. I want to show you 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He is speaking here about a woman looking in that day and age. In, and this is where culture comes into the picture. In her culture, at Corinth, a woman was to dress with a head covering. Now, we've gone over this before, and I don't need to really go into it, except to say that in that day and age, a woman by her appearance, uh, spoke of submission. Just like in our culture, there are certain things that that speak of submission. Uh, a woman looking like a woman. And it speaks of submission. It does not. Uh, it is not a message of rebellion. And you can understand that, that there are certain things in our, in our society that make statements. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll never forget the time, uh, two, two incidents when I was in California. A lot of strange things happen when you go to California. But... Um, I was, I was in the, uh, the airport, the Burbank airport on my way to, to fly for one day to San Francisco to visit my brother when he lived there. And I looked over to some people speaking and three people talking. I said, you know, my, that looks like a very, very, uh, feminine man. The more I got to, to look and I tried not to stare, but I did. And I said, that is not a man looking feminine. That is a woman looking masculine. And there are certain statements that we make with our clothing. I, uh, I recall, too, the last time I was in California, I was on line at a fast food place, and uh, a woman came to, uh, uh, to order some food. I have never seen a creature look quite like this. Uh, it was the epitome of the, of the punk style, and there is a statement made 
by what we look like and how we dress. And that's the thought of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that in that culture, for a woman to go in public without a head covering was to make a statement that she is no longer in submission to her husband. We just want to lay the foundation for that. The point I want you to see is as he speaks about head coverings is to say this. In verse 7 it says, for a man ought not to have his head covered in that culture, that would be a sign of femininity, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now watch this. Now the basis of this whole issue of submission is a culture. There may be the the truth that the expression of submission could be cultural in the sense of how we dress and look, but the basis of it And the principle, the eternal principle is not cultural because he says in verse 8, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. And then he says, therefore, the woman is to have a symbol of authority on her head. So the point being is that when people come along and say, oh, this is only cultural, Yes, this is what Paul taught for Ephesus and for Corinth, but it's only cultural. All you have to do is look in the text and see that the very basis for his his teaching is found in creation and the fall of man and has nothing to do with culture except it be the outward signs. For instance, the, as we said last week, the braiding of the hair, the the covering of the head, the dress and the jewelry and things like that. Those are cultural statements, but underneath that, is the eternal principle of submission, which is based on creation and not culture. People try to handle this problem, which really is not a problem, but they create a problem because they have a prejudiced view towards this issue. And that is, they say, the New Testament does not teach submission of women. That goes a step further. Does not teach it. We just think it teaches it. You just interpret it that way, they would say. But it really is not saying that if you understood what it was saying, then you'd understand that you're wrong. It's what they're basically saying. And one of their arguments, and this is, this is one of their strong arguments, or at least they think it's strong, is that they say, you are defining words improperly. For instance, you say that headship means authority, that the man is the head of the woman. That means authority. You're wrong. That word, they say, ought to be translated source. It means the source. The man is the source of the woman, not the leader or authority. She just comes from him. So he is the source. Well, how do we answer that? Once again, this is not very difficult either if you just do a little bit of thinking. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage we just looked at says in verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. All right. If um, if we ought to translate this source, are we saying that God is the source of Christ? If we want to say and be consistent that man is just the source of a woman, that she just originates from him, would we dare say that Christ originates from God, that he was created? That's what you have to say if you're going to redefine the word source or redefine the word head. Can't say that. Christ is eternal. He was not created. No, this is simply speaking about authority. While on earth, Christ was under uh, the authority of the Father. By the way, this verse, as I said the other week, in no way 
teaches against the inequality of the sexes. It is just speaking about function and about role, because certainly Christ is just as much God as the Father is. In fact, in the context of the next chapter, of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he speaks of the head and the body. Christ is the head of the body. Is he just saying that the body has its source from the head? No. The head didn't create the body. In that sense, he's speaking about authority. You see, only a prejudiced view could force this word to mean source and not authority. So those are the four basic views that people come up with to try to skirt the issue. And the issue is male leadership and female submission. Now, what is Paul saying? Now that we know what he's not saying, what is he saying? Verse 11. Let's look at it again. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. In other words, her activity in the church service is to be that of a quiet learner by voluntarily placing herself under the authority of male teachers. Let me say that again. Her activity in the church service is to be that of a quiet learner or a learner by voluntarily placing herself under the authority of the male teachers. That is really the heart of what Paul is saying. Now, the first thing that we ought to see as far as a woman's activity in the worship service, and this is very precious and we ought not to skip over this, is that women who worship are to be learners. Did you see that in verse 11? Let a woman quietly receive instruction. Many times we're so quick to pass over that and just get to verse 12, which says, I don't allow a woman to teach. But what Paul is saying is that her role may not be that of an authoritative teacher, but it is that of a learner. He's not just saying what she can't do. He's telling her what she should do. And what she should be doing is learning. Now, that's precious. The word for learn or to receive instruction is disciple. It is the Greek word for disciple. She is to be a disciple. She is to come to the church to learn. Women in worship are not to be teaching the men, but they are to be learning from the men. Now, this was a revolutionary statement in Paul's day. In fact, those who accuse Paul of bringing his rabbinical teaching to the scriptures don't know what they're talking about. Because if Paul brought his rabbinical upbringing and teaching to this portion of scripture, he would never say that because the rabbis didn't believe that women ought to learn about God in the service, in the synagogue. We understand from our previous studies in 1 Timothy that there was a great Jewish influence in this church probably a mixture of, of Gnosticism from the Greeks and, and Judaistic rabbinical teaching uh, from the Jewish people in the church. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 4, he speaks about not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. The genealogies obviously being the genealogies from the Old Testament. In verse 7, he says they want to be teachers of the law. They want to be esteemed rabbis. They want to be teachers, and that's what rabbi means. It means to be a teacher of the law, meaning what law? Well, not the Greek law, the Old Testament law. In Paul's day, contemporary Jewish thinking looked down upon women learning anything about theology. In fact, it's interesting for me uh, to find out this week, I was looking up some secular uh, Jewish sources on this, and one man goes to great length to say, it is not true, he says, and I'm not quoting him, but this is the essence of, of thought. He said, it's not true that, that, the, that the rabbis and the uh, scholars said that women couldn't learn. He said, why? Why, back in the 1500s in Europe, there was a school 
that had women being taught about God. What's interesting to me is that in all these years of Jewish history, he can only find one school in Europe in the 1500s that taught women. Contradicts what he's saying. The Talmud, which is the rabbinical writing, said that it was better to burn the Torah, which is the law, the five books of Moses, than to teach it to women. Rabbi Eliezer, writing in 90 AD, said this, and I quote, if a, if a man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, it is though he taught her lechery. In other words, sexual lewdness. It's the same thing he said. She might, might, as well, might as well teach her to be a prostitute as a teacher of the law. It's just what he's saying. Religious schools were restricted to boys, not girls. In synagogues, apparently there were two uh, services. One service had the liturgical worship, and it was open to men and women, and they could go and worship. But the second part of the service was when the scribes would do the teaching, and women and girls were not permitted, only the men and boys. According to one authority, he says, Jewish women were expected to make it possible for Jewish males to study Torah by raising, feeding, sheltering, healing, even supporting them. And I told you the other week about the film Yentl, which takes place a number of, of years ago in Eastern Europe when a, when a woman, a Jewish woman by the name of Yentl, has a great thirst to study not only the Old Testament, but the Jewish rabbinical commentaries. And her father goes against all tradition and teaches her and they study. And she says to him that, uh, why, why, why do I have this? And I'm not supposed to study like this. And he says, Yentl, you have the soul of a man because women did not normally do that. So I want you to understand that while it was the rabbinical Judaism of Christ's day that said no women are to be taught in the public worship service, Paul says that they are, and Jesus not only said it, but he did it. Very interesting. I read an old story from back in the early days of the feminist movement. A woman had just gotten home from a National Organization of Women meeting. Her five-year-old daughter greeted her with the news that when she grew up, she was going to be a nurse. In those days, nursing was considered women's work. The mom told the little girl that she could be anything she wanted, a doctor, a lawyer, an astronaut, even president of the United States. Well, the little girl looked rather doubtful, and she said, absolutely anything? Anything you want, said the mom. Well, after a moment, the girl informed her mother, I thought about it some more, and I've decided that I'm going to be a horse. <laughs> well, Jesus did make it clear that he valued women and that they have much more freedom than the men in most cultures have permitted. But there are still some limits. We can be anything we want to be as long as it's what God wants us to be. And if we are following him wholeheartedly and listening carefully, then we will want what he wants. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel is our teacher. If you're in Clearwater, why not stop in some Sunday? Lakeside's address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. Find out more about Lakeside at www.lakesidechapel.com. We're in the midst of a series of lessons from 1 Timothy chapter 2 about the roles of women in worship. If you missed any of the previous classes and want to catch up, you'll find a large selection of MP3 files at our website www.versebyverseradio.org And here's another website and a phone number especially for our listeners who have a digital talking book player. You can get a free audio Bible for your player by calling 
or visit www.blindbibles.com. That's blindbibles.com or 800-838-5924. I'm Jerry Peterson, and our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff. It was nice of you to join us today, and I hope you can be here for the next Verse by Verse. It might be easy to get the impression that because the Bible prohibits women from preaching to men, that God is saying that women can't be good teachers. But as Pastor Steve will share on the next broadcast, it's not about skill. It's about what God's Word says. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. We're talking about obeying God today. And, you know, I was thinking about obedience and why just that word has baggage. It's like it has a bad rap in our culture. And I think it's because we confuse obedience with compliance. The obedience that God asks for comes from a heart that loves Him. In that way, obedience is, is God's love language. It's the best way we can show God that we love Him. 